0: Well, good morning everyone. Good morning. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to 2 Timothy, the third chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read one verse there in just a moment and that verse is going to undergird everything that we will talk about today from the Word of God. So let's be looking together in the Scriptures beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, I will just echo the welcome that uh, has been extended to you already. I'm so glad that you are here. It is indeed a privilege and it is a blessing that we are able to assemble together as God's people here upon the first day of the week. And there's just really no better way to start this week or any week Than by being together, encouraging one another as we worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's do that right now by reverencing His Word. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, I'm reading here in verse number 12. In 2 Timothy 3, and in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes this to his young brother, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does that verse make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. You know, usually when we talk about that verse, we we try to make it practical and real for us today. And so what we say about that sometimes is we say maybe to our young people, we say young people, sometimes when you go to school, people will make fun of you for going to church and the fact that you're a religious person. And we say that that's, that's a form of persecution. Or maybe we say things like, well, you know, from time to time, Christians will be ostracized from the rest of the group and that is a form of persecution. Or maybe we say things like, you know, worst case scenario, sometimes people will get angry at you. They'll get mad at you. They might even cuss you out because of your convictions and your beliefs and that is a kind of persecution. I think in many ways we kind of strain and we struggle to fit the definition of persecution to something that we can understand and we experience today. But for Timothy, for Timothy that wasn't hard to do. For Timothy and other Christians living in the first century, persecution, it meant what you think it meant. It meant things like violence and plundering and imprisonment and in some cases even death. We've been seeing that already in our Wednesday night study through the book of Acts. But you need to know that that does not end in the book of Acts. There were men who came along even later after the writing of Acts, men like Nero and others who would unleash their fury on the church for several hundred years as the Roman Empire did everything that they could to stamp out and eradicate Christianity off the face of this earth. Persecution was a daily part of Christians' lives in the 1st century, in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, and even beyond. Where do we fit into that equation? You know, there are a number of admonitions in the New Testament about persecution. You go back to the beginning of the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and there He says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That note is repeated all throughout the New Testament, culminating with an entire book of the Bible that is designed to encourage Christians who are being persecuted to bear up and to bear under the weight of persecution. My question is, was all of that stuff written just for them? Were all those warnings and admonitions about persecution, was that just for people living in Bible time? Was 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, was that a painfully obvious truth for Christians living long ago in the eastern hemisphere of the world, but for us today, living in a modern, civilized culture here in the western hemisphere, we we don't really have to worry about all that persecution stuff. I mean, after all, nobody drove to church this morning having to look over their shoulder and constantly looking in the rearview mirror because they feared that they were being followed by the authorities. We're not meeting this morning in secret. No, we're, we're meeting in a very public fashion. And furthermore, nobody's going to have to go home this afternoon and grab their church directory and stuff it under their mattress for fear that it might fall into the wrong hands, giving the names and the addresses of all the people who identify themselves as Christians. That isn't happening to us. And as a result, we feel, very, we feel very secure about ourselves and about our situation. We feel very safe that we have religious liberties and that, well, we will always have those religious liberties and freedoms. The idea of persecution, the biblical way, well, that just seems so far away from us. That just seems so distant and so far removed from our reality and our existence. But maybe I could wake you up a little bit this morning. Can I share with you a story that I'm going to guess did not cross your news feeds last week and you most certainly did not see it reported on any mainstream news outlets? What you're looking at here is a picture of the Riverview Church of Christ in New Brunswick, Canada. Last Sunday morning during their worship assembly Two police officers, two police cars pulled into the parking lot and then two police officers which you can see there in the center standing in the doorway they came inside their building. Those officers were there to inform that congregation a congregation of I believe no more than 15 or 20 people that what they were doing there that morning was illegal. That particular province in Canada had recently mandated that there were to be no gatherings of more than five people unless you were considered an essential business or essential operation and unfortunately, churches were considered non-essential. I watched the entirety of that video and I'll be glad to send you the link if you want to watch that for yourself this afternoon. I watched what happened and I watched as well the conversation that took place between the main officer there and the local preacher there, Brother Stephen Millay. And thankfully that officer was very kind, and he was very courteous and in some ways he seemed to be rather understanding of what was going on. But that officer did make very clear that everyone who was gathered there that morning They would have to leave. That assembly would have to be broken up. And furthermore, he made it known that if anyone was caught meeting again like this while the restrictions were still in place, they would be fined. And if they continued to meet, there was the threat of incarceration. Now, I'm not here this morning to debate where you draw the line between the civil government trying to mitigate the spread of a virus and a church, on the other hand, being labeled unfairly as non-essential. I don't know exactly where the line gets crossed and that becomes the definition of persecution. I don't know where that line is. But here's my point for you this morning. What you're looking at right there, those are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Those folks are just like us. They look like us, masks and all. Their worship service was just like ours. And furthermore, this was not on some far-off country on the other side of the globe where they were talking in a different language and dialect. This wasn't in China or in Iraq. No, this was right here on this continent, North America, just a little bit across the border from Maine. And furthermore, this was not something that happened 1,500, 2,000 years ago in a far-off ancient time. No, no, no. This was last week. This was in 2021. And while this certainly is not the first kind of thing like this to happen to people of faith in recent times, it is certainly the kind of thing that arrests and seizes my attention. And as I said a moment ago, you may not necessarily consider this to be the definition of persecution, that what happened at the Riverview Church of Christ, that that actually is persecution. And that's fine if you don't believe that, but I'm going to tell you this this morning. The devil, the devil loved that. The devil absolutely loved what took place there last Sunday. He absolutely loved it because it was yet another blow in his centuries-long assault on the people of God upon the Lord's church. And what I'm going to be asking you this morning is, is what if the peace and the freedom that we currently enjoy in our country, and let's be honest, we've been enjoying it for a very long time, what if those privileges were taken away? What if Satan launched a full-scale frontal assault on the church? He's done it before. He'll do it again. What if you and I had to experience legitimate, literal persecution the kind that Paul is describing in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12? That is an unpleasant thought. Nobody here wants to think about that. I don't want to think about that, much less get up and talk about that. But I believe we need to talk about that. Because it seems to me that we are seeing as we survey our society We are seeing a certain shift in the way that our society feels about religion and the way that our society views Christians. And while I certainly am not some conspiracy theorist, I am not a doomsday prognosticator. You will notice this morning I am not wearing a tinfoil hat. I have nothing to gain by standing up here and shouting, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Even so, it would be incredibly naive of me to act as if first century persecution could never find its way here and then never say one word about how to be prepared for that. That can happen. That could happen. Paul says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What then? What then? This morning, I'm going to set before you three questions that each and every one of us needs to ask ourselves in light of the truth of 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. And then we need to provide ourselves honest answers. Because if God forbid persecution should befall us, what would we do? These three questions are designed to get us to be prepared if and when such a moment should ever occur. You ready for that? first of those questions is simply this, number one. If the church is persecuted, are you going to be a target? Or will that not even really be a problem for you? Can we just get over and see persecution in action? Let's get over in Acts the 8th chapter. We studied this a week or two ago on Wednesday night. In Acts chapter 8, let's just see how persecution looked and how that worked in New Testament times. In Acts chapter 8, this is verse 1, we're told that after the death of Stephen, Saul of course approved of his execution, verse 1, Acts 8, that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Drop down to verse 3 now. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Do you see that inherent in what Saul is doing here? Is that these Christians were known. They were known in the community in which they lived. You could identify them. If you lived in Jerusalem at that time, you knew the people who were Christians because because they lived out their Christianity. You could easily spot them. They were not secret service Christians. They were not trying to be anonymous disciples, nameless, faceless people who followed Christ. No. These were people who were known. Time and time again in the New Testament, we find that Christian was a name that was worn like a badge of honor to wear the name of Christ that was, it is, something to be proud of. But of course, if you do wear the name of Christ in that way, then naturally, that causes everybody to know who you are. And it then makes you a target for those who would use persecution as a means to destroy the church. And so I'm asking you this morning, is if that happens again, will you be one of the targets? That's worth considering, isn't it? That's worth thinking about. You know, sometimes I think we imagine that the way that persecution would happen is that we would all be assembled together like we are here on Sunday morning. And that what would happen is that the authorities would come barreling into the parking lot, and that we would all just be arrested all together, and we'd all be taken off to jail all together, all at the same time. And it certainly could happen that way. I'm sure that is possible. But, but what if government agents came, what if they came to your workplace and they said, hey, we're here to arrest all the Christians in this office? Let me ask you, would your coworkers fear? for your safety, would they be concerned for your well-being because they know that you're a Christian? Or is it possible that your co-workers would never even think about the possibility that you are a follower of Christ because you've never evidenced that to them in your life? If investigators maybe came to your neighborhood where you live and they went to your next door neighbor's house and they knocked on the door and they said, hey, we want the names of all the Christians who live on this street. Would your neighbor be giving them your name? Oh yeah, Josh McKibben, he's, he's a Christian. Him and his wife, they're Christians. They follow the Lord. They go to church all the time and are always doing stuff for Jesus. Would they know that? Or would your neighbors, the thought of you being a Christian, I just never even crossed their mind. I, I didn't even know that guy was even a Christian. I want you to please be mindful that religious persecution does not always mean That all the church buildings are just going to be torched and burned up and Christians now have to go and hide and meet in secret somewhere and all of that sort of thing. No. Oftentimes oppressive governments will still have some form of a church so that they can then control that church, control what it teaches and control what it does. The Roman government, for example, that we're reading about here in the Bible. They did not close all of the churches whenever persecution broke out. You could still go down to the idol temple and you could participate in the things that were going on down there. Even the Nazis, as evil and as awful as they were, they still had a state church, which of course did the bidding of its leader, of Adolf Hitler. And so if you were a person who was content to just be kind of a, a quasi-religious person, Somebody who still wants to have a little bit of spirituality in their life and maybe go attend a worship service or a church service once or twice a month or so. Well, well hey, you, you still would have had options. But the churches that were persecuted are the churches that are always persecuted. They are the ones who take the Bible seriously. They are the ones who believe and hold fast to the conviction that compromising on God's Word, that that is not an option. That's not even in the, in the game plan here. These are the ones who believe in basic concepts like assembling together and worshiping God in spirit and in truth, that those are fundamental and core concepts to who and what we are. They are the churches who call sin for what it is, regardless of what society says at the time, regardless of the ever-changing winds of popular opinion. The churches that get attacked are the ones who have members that are committed and devoted followers to the king. A king whose reign and rule exceeds that of any human government. In fact, human governments, they view followers of Jesus who are committed and devoted in that way, they view them as a danger. They view them as a threat and so they come looking for them. That's why this first question is being asked. Would you be one of their targets if such would ever occur? Would your depth of commitment to Jesus Christ be so evident that persecutors, they could spot you from a mile away because your light is shining so brightly for the Lord? Or is it possible that your light is burning so dim, it's barely even flickering that that persecution, you wouldn't even be on the radar they just walk right by you. They wouldn't even notice you because, because you just kind of look like everybody else. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that if the sum total of your Christianity is coming to church once or twice a week, and you just kind of do that out of a force of habit, and that's just really all that you're about as a Christian, I need you to know that that alone is not evidence of being a genuine disciple. Being a genuine disciple is when we live differently. When the values of the Word of God shape and mold and change everything about how we live. It's when we make real moral distinctions that the world is not making. It's when we choose and we make it known that we don't consume the same entertainment that they do. We don't wear the same kind of clothing and style of dress that they do. We do not talk and use the same kind of language that they do. It's when our priorities and our goals and our decisions in life, they are influenced by heaven instead of the sin-sick world in which we are pilgrims. A commitment to integrity and purity and righteousness and holiness that separates the people of God from everybody else. And listen to me. It is visible. You can see it. And so I'll ask you once again. If persecution were to befall the church, will you be one of the targets of that? Will you be picked off like the men and women described in Acts chapter 8? Or will you be overlooked because well, because you just look like everybody else in the world? If your answer to that first question is, Josh, I, I, I do think that I would be a target. And if your answer is yes, then, then good, I'm glad. But that then leads to this second question. And that second question is this. If the church is persecuted, are you going to stand up for the Lord when that happens? Will you stand for Jesus? You know, every now and then you'll hear somebody say something, and I I think I've even said this before, and I usually kind of chuckle when people say this and kind of go along with it. But you've maybe heard people say things before like, you know, I think a little persecution would do us some good. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a little cyanide in your coffee would do you some good. Do you know what happens when people are persecuted? People die. That's what happens in persecution. There is death. Persecution is the devil's effort to crush Christianity by forcibly making people recant. Who wants that? Who thinks that's a good thing? Jesus talks about that in Matthew the 13th chapter. Would you find Matthew 13 It's part of the parable of the sower? In Matthew 13, and and in fact, this is a little bit of a challenge. Next time you're reading in your Bible, I want you to just kind of take special notice and just read passages through the lens of persecution. Because I think you'll just be amazed at how much the Bible has to say about that. But in Matthew chapter 13, we are told here about the rocky ground. Well, who are these people? Who are the people identified as the rocky ground? Matthew 13 verse 20, Jesus says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. So he endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately he falls away. I need you to see that in persecution, Christians die. And in some cases, that means that their physical body continues to live, but their soul dies because they quit being a Christian. And so if persecution comes, I'm asking you, will that be you? Will you be one who gives up and dies? Or will you take a stand? Look with me in Genesis the 22nd chapter. I want to grab a principle here out of the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, this is that famous passage where Abraham is told to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. This is almost unthinkable for God to command someone to do this. But Abraham, to his credit, he is ready and willing to offer his only son Isaac. And so the Bible says that as Abraham, he reaches out his hand and he is ready to bring the knife down to do exactly what God instructed him. Genesis 22 says in verse 12, Genesis 22 and in verse 12, God said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You know, just as sure as God learned some stuff about Abraham and about his faith that day, Abraham also learned some things about himself that day. Abraham got a bird's eye view of the depth of his own faith. Abraham came to realize that he could serve God and he could do what God said during this trial. And if he could do that during this trial, he could serve God no matter what. It didn't matter what happens. If you can serve God in this situation, what situation can you not serve God in? And unfortunately, I'm not so certain that we always know that same thing about ourselves. You know, we talk about persecution... But if it were to come, how would we know? How would we know what we would do? You know, what's it like to look down the barrel of an AK 47 knowing that if you do not renounce Christianity, if you do not say, I don't believe in Jesus, I give it all up, you're going to die? What's that like? I don't know what that's like. I've never had to experience that before. What's it like to have your house surrounded by an angry mob holding flaming torches who want to know, hey, are you a Christian? Because if you are, if the answer to that is yes, we're going to burn your whole house down with you and your family inside it. What's that like? Would you stand for Jesus in that moment? You know, we have inherited so much. We've inherited so much of our faith. For many of us, we have. We've inherited nice church buildings. We've inherited fine spiritual legacies from men and women who have gone before us. Men and women who stood in the trenches and they fought the battles and they stood strong when the world was saying yes. They were ready to say no. They were the people who stood fast and were criticized for standing for the truth. But oftentimes, oftentimes many of us, we have never known personally That kind of pressure. We haven't had to stand in the trenches like that. We've been the beneficiaries of those who stood before us. And so the question then comes for us. Could you do it? Would you be able to stand? You know, I can't offer you any kind of persecution ometer where you just stick this under your tongue and if it beeps, then hey, you know that you've got what it takes. I can't offer you anything like that. But I can't offer you a principle that Jesus gives. Look in Luke the 16th chapter. Here's a good way to gauge how your answer to this question would be whether or not you would stand in the face of persecution. In Luke the 16th chapter, after Jesus tells the parable of the unjust steward or the dishonest manager, or whatever you want to call this guy, Jesus then says this in verse 10. In Luke 16 and in verse 10, Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I like how the New Living Translation renders that verse. It says, if you are faithful in little things, then you can be faithful in large things. But if you are dishonest in little things, you will not be honest with greater responsibilities. Do you see the principle of fidelity to the Lord that Jesus is articulating there? Young people, if you buckle and fold every time that your friends razz you for you not using foul language or for the fact that you don't watch certain kinds of movies and shows or over the fact that you don't drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes or party like they do, if you can't stand up to that light persecution what makes you think you're going to be able to stand up to biblical persecution? What makes you think you're going to be able to do that if you can't even do the small stuff? Let me say to singles, folks who are not married, if you cannot practice sexual purity now and discipline your body now not to give in to the desires of the flesh, what makes you think that you will be able to discipline yourself in the moment of truth when someone's holding a gun to your head and they are demanding that you forsake your allegiance to Jesus Christ, or they're going to pull the trigger, what makes you think you're going to be able to do that? If you can't be faithful in little things, how are you going to be faithful in the big things? Christian, if you are afraid to invite someone to come to church, or if you are afraid to extend an invitation to someone to study the Bible because you are fearful that they might react negatively to that, that that might turn awkward and hostile? What makes you think that if someone was holding a knife to your throat that, oh, suddenly now, now all of a sudden, you're going to have the courage. You'll have the courage that you need to speak up for the Lord. It won't happen. If you can't be faithful to the Lord in the little things, then you actually already know the answer to this second question. Do you see now why it is important for us to talk about persecution? As unpleasant and as uncomfortable as that is? You know, we are kidding ourselves. If we think that somehow we can go through life being spiritual zeros But as soon as persecution rears its ugly head, oh, we can turn it on. We can go from zero to 60 and we can become a spiritual hero just just like that. We'll take that big stand for the Lord. I'm going to say to you once again, it won't happen. If you want to be ready for persecution, then that means you need to be standing for Jesus now. You need to be faithful to the Lord now. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, if you're still here in Luke 16, look at verse 13. Jesus says there in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you are trying to serve two masters now, Jesus and the world, then isn't it true that persecution, persecution will force you to pony up and admit who the real master of your life is? Persecution will force you to say, I I never really was serious about Jesus in the first place. If persecution were to come, would you stand? Which brings me to this third and final question this morning. And that is if the church is persecuted, will you remember that God is in control? You know, persecution is a difficult subject for people of faith. And one of the reasons for that is because it brings to the forefront of our mind just some very hard questions about the nature of God and about how God rules in the universe. You know, when we see some notorious drug lord arrive at his court hearing and his trial, and he jumps out of a big long stretch limousine. And he's decked from head to toe in bling and jewelry. And he's got a big retinue of people with him all dressed in suits. And he's hired himself the biggest, most expensive fleet of lawyers you can imagine. We see that kind of thing and we think, man, how can bad people end up doing so well? And by that same token, whenever we see an innocent child who is sick and who is suffering, we look at that and we say, man... How can someone who is so innocent and so good end up in such pain suffer so much? But you know what? The question of persecution, it really ramps that line of questioning up to a whole nother level. Because in persecution, good people suffer specifically and explicitly because they are good. And when that happens, it can leave a Christian asking and questioning God. God, what happened? What's going on? I mean, we're trying to do the right thing down here. I mean, we totally get it when we are punished for doing the wrong thing. When the bite back of sin has its natural effects, we get that. It's totally understandable. But God, we're we're being faithful right now. What exactly is going on here? If you want to know what that sounds like, there are actually several books from the intertestamental period. That's those books between Malachi and Matthew. They are not inspired books. Those are the books called the Apocrypha. But they do offer some historical perspective and they do give voice to that confusion. Because often in those books you'll hear people crying out saying like, God, we're not serving idols anymore. So why has our nation, why has our country been overrun with Greeks? Why have they burnt down our places of worship? Why are they forbidding us to teach the law of Moses? God, what's going on here? If you want to see that in the Scriptures, then you read books like Habakkuk and Daniel, some of those prophets that we're reading this year. And in particular, you read the book of Revelation. Because those are the books that address the issue of what exactly is going on whenever God's people suffer at the hands of evildoers. God, why are you allowing us to be slaughtered? Why is this taking place? Why is it happening to us? And every time, you need to know, God has the answer. Would you look in Revelation? Look in Revelation the fourth chapter. In Revelation chapter 4, As John begins to reveal to his original readers what it was that they needed to see and understand. And in fact, these are the very same things that you and I need to see and understand as well. In Revelation, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 2, John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from that throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. You keep on reading there, but what those persecuted Christians needed to see was that God was still on the throne. He was on that throne in power and in majesty. God was still ruling and He was still reigning. No Caesar had thrown Him off of that throne. Why, in persecution, what these Christians were called to is they were actually called to a higher level of faith, to more trust that God truly was in control. To trust that God, He's not on vacation. God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't somehow fallen asleep. God has most certainly not lost the battle against the devil. Even though it does appear that the devil is winning. And even though, yes, the streets are running red with the blood of Christians, the book of Revelation was written to say to those Christians that God still rules and God is still in control. And so the call to them in a time of persecution was that they needed to keep trusting and that they needed to keep standing and that they needed to keep persevering because in the end, God's people would be victorious. That's Revelation 2 verse 10. Just turn back just a page in Revelation 2 verse 10. John says this to these folks in Revelation 2 and in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You know, we quote the last part of that verse all the time. We know it from memory. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. And we oftentimes read that verse at funerals. We read it at the funerals of people who have lived faithfully for the Lord and they died in good old age of natural causes. But that's not the context for that verse. Do you see what that statement meant to those Christians as they were being persecuted? This is why and this is where we need to get our own faith fortified and settled so that we will be prepared when persecution comes our way. Maybe that means, first of all, that we need to just admit very candidly that God doesn't always run the universe the way that we would like or the way that we would expect. I would be sure that God would do this for His people, but you know what? God has other plans for His people. And that means as well that we need to always trust that God knows what is best. He will always act in the best interest of His people. And that means as well that we need to be absolutely convicted That no matter what comes our way in the here and in the now, and as painful as the things that we might have to experience in this life, we need to have the conviction that God's people are going to win in the end. We get to wear the crown of life exactly as He promised. And that means that I know exactly what to do in good times, be faithful, And I know exactly what to do in bad times. Be faithful. And that, that'll be enough. God is in control. If persecution comes, will you remember that? Will you remember that so that you can keep on being faithful unto Him? Now I fully understand why it is that sermons like this are utterly uncomfortable and they are unenjoyable. You will notice this morning I did not ask Tom to lead us in a few verses of sing and be happy after this sermon is over. That's, we're not going to do that. I pray fervently that the truths of this lesson are never needed. I pray that we, we never have to implement these things in our life. I pray that we don't have to implement those things in, in this lifetime in 50 years, in 100 years, even in 10,000 years. But I go back to what Paul said in the beginning. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if we think that Satan is unable to bring full-scale persecution to this country, to this state, to this city, even to this church then we have severely underestimated our enemy. You and I need to take seriously the warnings of Scripture. And we need not take for granted the privileges that we currently enjoy and use that as an excuse to become inattentive and unaware and lazy. God's people need to be prepared at any moment to number one, be a target for persecution. And in that moment, we will need secondly, the courage to stand... And then we will need, thirdly, the faith to endure to the end. But that will only happen if you and I are building up a well of resources right now so that we can draw upon them when that persecution finally comes. If you're not living faithfully as a child of God this morning, then brother or sister, you already know in your heart that if persecution were to come, your answer to those three questions would all be no. And that means as well, you know that you would be just sitting prey, a sitting duck for the devil's assault. In fact, the truth of the matter is, you're already a sitting duck if you are living in unrepentant sin. Which is why this right now is an opportunity for you to get that sin out of your life. The word for that is repentance. To ask God humbly meekly for His forgiveness, and then return yourself to faithful service once more. If this morning we can pray with you, if we can encourage you to serve God in a better way, then we stand ready to help you do just that. If you're not yet a Christian, but you are of an age of accountability, then not only are you not ready to stand up against the assaults of the devil, but more importantly, you're not ready to stand before the Lord. You're not ready to meet God. That can all be changed this morning. If you believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, if you are willing to be united with Him in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, talking about water baptism, then you this morning can become a child of God. You can be added to that family known as the saved and then you can join the rest of us in fighting the good fight of faith. Can we help you to become a Christian today? If there's anybody this morning who is subject to the invitation and we can help you, then why don't you come right now and make that known. Do that while we stand and while we sing.